We are I. After turning off the video instead of hitting record, we're uh, we're live. So, uh, Brigida, we were just talking here this morning about. Uh, uh, I want to throw a whole bunch of questions her way about the different microbiomes on the body because I really believe the only thing that has a lot of publicity right now is the micro gut biome. Like obviously we know this, um, but the there's so much diversity on the body, and is one thing that. Um, I know that you explained quite a bit at the beginning of your uh, latest book that why did we think all these different environments internally and externally were sterile for the longest time, you know, and now we realize how they have all these different um, unique environments. So I guess I should start off. Welcome back to the show there, Bridget. Thank you. Um, so the skin, let's go like super like thousand sky high, you know, like we're way up there and then we'll start pulling it down. So um, I know there's probably quite a few people out there that realize the skin is the biggest organ on the body. Um, but for those that don't, you know, like, why is it, how is it? And like, what does that mean? You know, maybe give us a little bit of detail on, on the skin and we'll start flowing into the different environments from there. Okay. So the skin, like you said, is the largest organ in the body. It's an excretory organ. Um, and it's involved on even subtler levels with with um, not only giving out toxins, but also taking in information. So we know that with touch because we have so many nerve receptors on the skin and we can feel even the slightest breeze or the tiniest little creature crawling on us. Um, but the skin is also um, responsible for breathing. So it's, there's an instance of back in ancient times, there was a parade or something like that for one of the kings. And one of the people that was in the parade was covered in gold foil and they died because they suffocated. So even though they could breathe through their mouth and nose, it wasn't enough. The skin has to breathe. And in terms of the microbiome, the skin is covered in microbes and different parts of the skin are totally different environments. So they have different microbes that will inhabit them. So like with the gut microbiome, what we say is that something that determines the health of the gut microbiome is its diversity. So the greater diversity there is, the healthier the gut microbiome is. Well, that's not necessarily the case with other parts of the body. And so, for example, the skin in the axilla and the armpit the more diverse it is, the least healthy it is, because most likely there are pathogenic microbes that are there that are helping to create that diversity. And so different areas of the skin are different environments and they have different microbes that help to keep that environment in check. Um, and so a concern with COVID-19 is, especially with the hands, that we are doing something bad to the microbes on the hands. And what actually is the case is that when we use all these antimicrobial substances, whether it's 
alcohol, which we know dries the skin in the sanitizers, regardless of what kind of alcohol it is, or if it's antimicrobial hand soap, what we're doing is um, we're actually breaking down the bonds between the, the microbes that protect the skin and offer a first line of defense. So in Chinese medicine, we consider this just beneath the skin to be the first line of defense in the immune system. And that's where the Wei Qi circulates or the immune Qi or the defensive Qi. And so what we're doing is um, we are kind of eroding this Qi on the hands. And instead of feeding the microbes that will help to keep us healthy, we are instead making their environment less habitable for them and breaking down the connections between them, which actually makes it more um, easy for pathogenic microbes to infiltrate and colonize the hands. So in between all of that, I mean, it's necessary right now to some extent to do more hand washing, obviously. And in the winter time, we generally do because it is cold and flu season. But in between all that hand washing, we have to take even more effort to put on lotions and oils, things that have botanical ingredients in them and beneficial ingredients that will help to not only soothe the skin itself, but help to um, replenish the food source for the beneficial microbes that live on it. See, so it's like, this is what I was worried about with this, because like this conversation, I have like 4,000 questions that have like come from that. And <laughs> I feel like you can probably kind of pick up a little bit on like how my brain is like, click, 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 click. <laughs> um, I want to go kind of everything from, um, well, first of all, I just want to say this, because I find it ironic how about, I do agree that we wash our hands a lot more in the winter time which the irony to me is, yes, it may be cold and flu season, but we're less places. You know, like we're more places when it's nice outside, but we probably wash our hands less because we don't deem it to be like as important of a time to be able to, you know, be diligent with washing our hands all the time because it's not cold and flu season. But so like the contrast is just, is interesting there to me. Is like, I feel like that's just human nature all the time, 101. Um, but so from lotions, I know there's always like a lot of controversy. A lot of people don't buy into the whole, you know, like different lotions mean different things to our bodies, you know, like clogging our pores, the perfumes that are in them, all the additives, the extras, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then all the way bringing it into like, like wearing masks and how, you know, like that might be changing the microbiome, like in our mouth and changing the microbiome in our nose. And then some people are wearing those coverings that, are up over their neck and then they pull it up and it like covers their ears and their mouth and their nose. Um, where do you want to start? Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say when I use the word lotion, I don't mean the general lotion that you'd get at, you know, the drugstore or the grocery store, but, or even something in a specialty place, you know, I, I lean toward things that are hundred percent, organic and natural and do not have those perfumes and such that you're talking about. So um, the people who don't really know, like what are the harms of just the real generic, uh, you know, like lotions, you know, like even if you're yeah. buying a lotion that's, um, you know, perfume free, dye free and all that kind of stuff. Um, like let, let's start with like the worst ones, you know, like the ones that are 
heavily fragranced. They, you know, they might have some coloring in them. You know, you pump it out. It's got this like little, you know, like mint green look to it. And it, you know, it might smell like a mojito or something like that. Um, let's start with those ones. Like, why are those so bad for our skin? Well, it's the same thing as why is a, a particular food less desirable because you're feeding your body when you put something on your skin. You are, you are putting something in your body when you put something on your skin. Think of it that way. Mm. There is not this differentiation. There is, the skin is an excretory organ, but it's incredibly absorbent. It absorbs things and sends it into the general circulation underneath the skin. And so it's drinking this stuff up and sending it into the body. Look, I mean, I just listened on the way to drop my daughter off at school this morning. There was a commercial on for one of these lawyers that's uh, encouraging people that had ended up with an ovarian cancer diagnosis to contact them if they used talcum powder for years. And so that's a perfect example because you're not putting talcum powder inside of you. You're putting it on the skin. And so the skin is absorbing it and it's sending it into the body. Where it sends it, you don't know where it's going to land. And then the, once it's in this general circulation, the liver has to detoxify it. And so that's why we want to avoid anything processed. Prepared is different than processed. Um, so if you prepare something, like if you cook something, that's prepared. But processed is when you mess around with its genetic uh, signature or you create something in a lab and then put it in the food or you add a preservative, that's processed. And so a lot of the things that we're putting on our skins are also processed. And the cosmetic industry is rife with them and they say, oh, we add like this and that and the other thing. But um, that may be true, but there are these other ingredients that are, are not as beneficial for the body. So it's just like if you have a preservative or a food coloring, if you don't want to put that in your mouth, then don't put it on your skin either because you are kind of putting it in your mouth if you put it on your skin. They're doing research with vaccines where the vaccine is placed uh, in a patch and the patch is put on the skin and the immune system in the gut is responding to the vaccine that's been placed in a patch on the skin. And they don't know how, they just know that that's happening. Um, any woman who's done hormone replacement and put that patch on her skin knows the power of putting something on your skin because those patches are this small and they can be the immediate difference between wild mood swings and anxiety and years of insomnia to feeling like you can go with the flow and sleeping at night like that. So putting something on the skin is really powerful and it may not make too much of a difference right at first, but cumulatively throughout that bottle of whatever it is, that stuff is adding up and, and your body's getting used to it and it's changing in response to it. 
Well, and the, like you even say, like there's um, like the other examples are like like testosterone patches. Like I know there's like some guys, you know, to bring up their testosterone levels. Um, there's nicotine patches. Right. Um, you know, I think it was about six or seven years ago now, there was um, like Halloween out here in Vancouver. They had to put out a warning um, because there was somebody who laced temporary tattoos um, with ketamine, I think it was. So when these kids were putting on these temporary tattoos, they were getting a dose of ketamine, which obviously is insane. Um, but like, yeah, like we're, we're that connection with just something applied topically. I don't think it's really talked about enough because like for one, I notice a difference in my skin when I wear like t-shirts and shorts all the time versus when I wear like long sleeves and, you know, like pants or, you know, like anything that covers my body. Um, mm -hmm. I actually, I feel less connected with the environment around me and which might sound crazy to most people, but I spend so much time outside yeah. and I'm really self-aware that I try to pick up on all those kind of things. Right. Um, and, it, and it's even like the difference with water too. Like what I've been really trying to focus on is when I'm in water you know, like the different temperature degrees is so if I'm in warmer water, I actually always have to go pee if I'm in warm water, uh, you know, after about like 20, 15, 20 minutes. And if I'm in cold, colder or cold water, I never have to go pee. And I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm like, I wonder how much of me is being hydrated because now my pores are open. My skin's this organ. I'm pulling in this water. And then, uh, then I get to this point of, oh, wait, but this happens when I'm sitting in the hot tub and there's all these chemicals in the hot tub. So I'm like, I go through all of this work, not to put any of this garbage right. in my body. And then I sit in the hot tub. I'm like, how much of these chemicals am I absorbing through my skin that are ending up in my body? And how much of that is now contraindicated where I'm doing, you know, like this thing is what I feel like a service to my body, but it actually might be more of a disservice because of all of the cleansing my liver has to do, you know, because I'm pulling in all these chemicals that are incredibly toxic. I would never drink any of these chemicals, but I'm essentially drinking because I'm late, sitting in the hot tub for like a half an hour and drinking it all in through my skin. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And it's like the same thing. And they don't know how much of it, you know, there's, I, I, you don't read about how much of it is going to get into your body and how your body metabolizes it. And that's another thing. Like there's a, there are some multi-level marketing companies now that are putting caffeine in patches. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, we don't understand how the body metabolizes something like that differently than it does when you ingest it. So our bodies are used to ingesting caffeine inside of the larger plant that it comes naturally in, whether it's a tea leaf or a coffee bean or a chocolate. And so those are bioavailable forms of caffeine. And then you have this patch now, which just has caffeine that people are, you know, smacking on their skin and they feel great. Well, you know, you don't know what that is going to mean down the road. And, and like you mentioned, testosterone patches, like when, when a man has a testosterone patch on, if there's a pregnant woman in the house, she's, she can't touch him. Mm -hmm. That's how potent they are. And, yeah. um, yeah, it's, an, it's intense. So 
it's definitely something to think about that we don't usually consider. And, you know, people that go swimming in a chlorinated pool every single day and, you know, these athletes and everything, it's, it's definitely something to consider. Well, that's actually like the, when I was sitting there contemplating all this, um, I was thinking that I'm like, I wonder how many like professional like swimmers or just like athletic swimmers were, you would never necessarily draw that correlation. Like if they ended up with cancer or some kind of disease, yeah of saying like this might have something to do with you ingesting all this chlorine for years because essentially you're micro dosing your body with chlorine every day right. you know and like you would never take like a you know like a quarter teaspoon of straight chlorine every day but like if you were in a pool swimming for an hour or two like you may be doing something similar to that it might not be that much but like you know if you're doing this something like over days and weeks and months and years and decades like you would imagine like how would that not because we know how much it affects your skin like it dries out your skin you know then you have to put more lotions on and if you're putting like you know these lotions with all these chemicals on like you can see the compounding effect behind all these you know um environments that we subject ourselves to you know but we don't ever really think about it but the one thing that like where you mentioned it's like this talcum powder how many lawsuits have there been but we just don't have a singular resource to say, okay, well, here's all of these items that these companies have now been sued for, or, you know, like people brought court cases against these companies. How long is that list now? Because you only hear about the one and, you know, then it kind of goes away. Then it's like, you know, I think there was a lawsuit with a, a, a gentleman sued a cell phone company because he always had his cell phone in his pocket and then he ended up getting testicular cancer. And they thought there was a correlation between like, you know, having a cell phone in your pocket and like testicular cancer, you know, like maybe true, may not be true. But I think these are all the things that we have to consider, you know, because we don't ever entertain them as potential possibilities. Right, right. I think, I think the reason for that is because there, there really aren't enough studies done on it. And in order to do a study on something like that, you'd have to analyze an entire population's complete lifestyle factors and that means like everything they do how well they sleep when they sleep when they're eating what they're eating where they live what they're exposed to in order to be able to tie it you know together with some of the stuff that we're talking about like swimming in the pool and that brings up you know your respiratory system too like that's aerosolized chlorine that you're breathing in on a regular basis and how much of that we don't know um and so they in general, I, I think that things don't tend to be recognized as viable things to research or think about because they're not researched enough to think, to, to think about them and to put that information out there. Like scientists and doctors are always going to err on the side of caution in general with respected studies. They're not going to necessarily be putting hypotheses out there unless they feel they can really back them up somehow um which that's not because there's always so many different things happening in the body where like nobody really wants to overextend themselves and commit to you know like a hypothesis hypothesis or like an answer like a conclusion you know they don't want to be held liable or accountable to it but i think like these are the things where we know so little about our bodies yeah. you know and because they have a chance to be able to evolve all the time like 
I don't know if you agree or not. I, I remember reading somewhere sometime that like the smallest biological changes in our body take about 10,000 years to actually take an effect. Like, you know, like a little bit less hair on your arms or anything like these, like little subtle changes, you know, like if that's true, or even if it's 5,000 years, or even if it's a thousand years, you know, but when things change so rapidly now, or all of a sudden a company comes out one day with this new cream that happens to have like this chemical in it, and like all these people are using it, you know, like our body may be able to adapt to these kind of things, but because we are constantly throwing it under the bus all the time with constant change, like we just never have had such constant change before. So we had a little bit more opportunity to be able to adapt to these environments, you know, but now like there's so much synthetic life going into our bodies, yeah. you know, like how's our body ever going to keep up that? it's not just the pool. It's not just the clothes we wear because, you know, we haven't even talked about synthetic fibers on the you know on the body all the time right. you know we haven't talked about you know how the micro um biome uh, might have changed on the skin because we're inside so much all the time and when we're outside we're clothed so much that we don't even have like these opportunities all of these changes like really affect our body you know but when you talk to these uh, some people about these things it's like oh, there's no way, or, you know, like, that's not going to happen, oh, it's not that big of a deal, but it's, like, I think we forget about the cumulative effect, like, we're, we're only just now talking about a few examples with the skin, but we could probably literally list thousands of examples to do with just the skin, then we could have, like, hundreds, if not thousands, examples of, like, so many different areas in the body, how, like, we're just continually throwing ourselves under the bus, and how does that compound over a lifetime? Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to get into something that I think is a really interesting point now. So we're wearing these masks because of COVID-19, but our body is not designed to be able to handle wearing a mask and how that can change, um, you know, the microbiome uh, in the mouth, uh, and in the nose. And obviously like through the nose, we're getting into the respiratory system and how that might affect the environment in the lungs, you know, does it make it more moist in the lungs? And, you know, if it's a more moist environment, you know, is that, you know, better or worse, you know, in today's day and age, is it drier because of that? Um, is that better or worse? Um, I was talking to a dentist a, a, a couple weeks ago and just asked his opinion, whether he thinks that things like, you know, like gingivitis or like tooth decay or things like that, because now, you know, like where we might be breathing a little bit more through our mouths, through these masks, and how much that is changing uh, the bacterial load like in our mouth and whether or not we see like more gum disease, you know, you know, as a result of this, or, you know, just the foundations of those things being set or an exacerbation of it. I know that's a lot to throw at you there, but, you know, kind of start peeling it away from any area that you want. So well, I'm curious to know what the, the dentist said. Um, he said that um, there's always going to be like those changes, like, like, in, but it, it really depends on how long it's going to last, you know, like, if it's like a month, you know, it may be like so subtle, and it would get back to it so quickly. But he said, like, the concern would be, is if this continues to last, like, there is going to be like this change. And the more that you breathe out of your mouth, the more you are going to be susceptible to some of these like oral diseases, like in the mouth. Um, and how we started that conversation, because him and I have been talking about it for years, because of how athletic I am, you know, like that's the one thing that he says that I always need to be aware of is because breathing in and out of my mouth, you know, so much like he's like, 
you're you're doing it at a rate that you know by the time that you were 20 you probably took more mouth breaths than the average person by the time they were like 90 who's not an athlete because of just right. how much that you're physically active so he's like there there definitely is the potential for it but it depends on how long it's going to last and how many hours in a day an individual is wearing a mask like if you're at the office all day and you're wearing this thing over your your face for you know you know six seven eight hours a day you know, like that's going to be a huge difference. Like I know out here, you see people driving around with them, walking down the street with them, you know, like at the park with them at home or like at the office with them, you know, like arguably there's probably two thirds of most people's waking hours where they have this mask over their face. And that would be this thing where you would start to see these systemic changes. Right. So I think with all of this stuff, we're looking at what's the lesser evils in the immediate future. Yeah. So, you know, with the mask wearing, I would, my guess would be that it would tend to dry the mouth out more. Um, that's been my experience that I feel more dry as a result. And the other problem with that is feeling more dry and drinking less water because you've got the mask on. Um, I actually noticed that, it's funny you bring that up. I've noticed that I am drinking way less water now. And I've wondered if it's because of the, the mask. And it's funny that you say that. So it, it might be, because I couldn't figure out why. I've always drank lots of water. Um, but for the last like couple months, like I've really noticed a, like a sharp decrease. Like I have to be way more cognizant of drinking water in a day than what I normally am. Yeah. I don't think there are that many people that are actually focusing on trying to prove the ill effects of mask wearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we're probably not going to see any studies on that anytime in the near future. But, you know, really, people have been wearing masks to work for a, a long, you know, look at OR docs and nurses and dentists and, and people that work in research facilities and labs and stuff like they've got masks, they've had masks on all day their entire careers. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe it would be interesting to, to, if there was a study, look at people that are in those environments and, and test their oral microbiomes against people that don't normally wear masks. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's definitely, go, there's definitely ramifications to everything that we do. And it's impossible to know what they are because we don't know everything about the body we don't know everything about the microbiome and um really what we need to do is is to do the best we can with what we do know without being obsessive compulsive about it because that's not good for us either because that's jacking the nervous system up so um yeah i would imagine that there are you know i've had people come in and say that they they grind their teeth and clench their teeth more with a mask on too. That's another one. Really? Yeah. I wonder if it's just because yeah. of like the, you know, their, their nerves or their anxiety levels high. Like, you know, like when you have your mask on, like you, you think now you're in a vulnerable environment to be able to get COVID-19. So like the stress and the anxiety go up and like, that would be where the, it could be, it could be that the straps on the mask are bringing attention to the fact that they've been, clenching their jaw all along and they just yeah. become, become aware of it. I don't know, but there've been a couple of people who have come in and said that to me. Yeah. So what, 
based on what you know about COVID-19 and what you know uh, about the, the lungs, the nose, do you think like that there could be any change for the positive or the negative by wearing a mask and having this change in the nose in the and in the lungs and like this this kind of like respiratory like I definitely think that there could be a subtle negative shift in people who are never taking their mask off when they're outside or anything like that like it, I think it's really important to breathe some fresh air. And now like I wear two masks when I go out, um, but I'm sitting in, in this other treatment room with the mask off. Yeah. Um, but if I, but I, I at least go out in my yard or I try to go out somewhere that I'm not around anybody else and breathe, mm -hmm. you know, every day, get some fresh air at least. Um, so it, I guess the, the two things I have there is um, how come you've decided to go double mask? I, I, I don't know enough about it. I just keep hearing that there's not a lot of um, research that says that there's actually that much more of a benefit to wearing two, but I don't know. Like I said, I haven't really looked into it at all. Um, but for two, like what you were saying about breathing in some fresh air, because there's, there's a lot of um, like bacteria, there's a lot of stuff like entering the body that's beneficial to us of having a non-filtered environment of stuff being entered into our body. Like, you know, is there not, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, if we always have this filter, you know, going like into our bodies, we're also taking away of a lot of the beneficial exactly. bacteria stuff like that, that could be yep. in our body. That's why I think that people should be getting outside and, and breathing mm -hmm. without a mask on. Yeah. So why the, why the double mask? Talk to me. Because the infection rate spiked around here in January. Okay. And, um, and I'm in, a, in a, an enclosed room with people. Um, so in order to keep everybody more safe, because I know that I've been exposed, then, and I don't know when I'm getting exposed, it, I feel more safe, but yeah. it's, it's common sense to me that the more layers that you have, the more opportunity there is for the virus to get trapped on a fiber than make it into my mouth or nose. Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing is that the UK variant is in our town. Okay. And it's much more contagious. So that's another reason. So it's is the UK variant or is it the South African variant that's um, a lot more contagious, but like the, like the effect or like the uh, morbidity rate or anything like that's like not higher, um, but like it is more contagious. Not like higher. No, the morbidity rate is not higher. I don't know about the South African one. I, I don't think that either of them have higher morbidity rates. I haven't read that yet. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that they're more contagious. So even though they may not have, so the, the end goal here, largely from a public health standpoint, is to prevent the hospitals getting overwhelmed. Yeah. So yeah. we're not worried about what's gonna happen with the vaccine 20 years from now in someone's body. We're not worried about masks. We're not worried about this. We're not worried about that. What we're worried about is overwhelming the hospitals to the point where pretty much everything collapses. Mm -hmm. so um so yeah so with the uk variant because it's more contagious it may not be 
that it's more deadly, but if more people catch it, then there's more people that can get that sick and end up in the ICU. So that's the problem with it. And, um, and I'm exposing whoever comes in my office, I'm exposing them to whoever I saw through me, mm-hmm. potentially, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I have elderly people coming in and people with diabetes and, you know, and you never know. You never know. So, so I just err on the side of caution. That's my preference. But I know that the, um, that Dr. Fauci has also recommended that people start double masking because of that new, more contagious variant. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And I just saw something today where they, there there was an ad for a brace that you wear over the, those rectangular surgical masks that hold it shut on your face. Cause that's part of it too, because the air can get out here and it gets out the sides cause they're pretty baggy. Yeah. Especially some pe- a lot of people don't wear them right. So this is how I wear it. My glasses are holding it on the top, but you can see like there's a big gap. Yeah. So yeah. there's room for stuff to get in and out. And most people don't pinch it shut. So this is what I see on a lot of people. And there's a big opening right there. Yes. So I usually put one of these on over my my and my KN95, which is totally flush to the face. Oh, okay. And that's, that's a lot. I don't want to go, you know, on a speed walk with (laughs) (laughs) a jog with those two things on, but that's for sure. And the other thing is, you know, are these off gassing? Yeah. Right. And we take them out of the package and those little tiny fibers, like, can they come off? Like, you know, these are things that I wonder about. Yeah. Something that I was wondering uh, too is um, like how, if there's any like effect positive or negative, um, like what the actual, like, um, like carbon dioxide and like oxygen exchange is like in the body, like what, what's, because like, obviously the more restricted this filter becomes, you know, like it is going to change that composition in the body, like a little bit to some degree, who knows, might be absolutely nothing. It might be like a little bit, might be a ton, who knows, you know, but like, like, what is your thought b- behind that? I think it would make your blood pressure go up first. Yeah. I, I we were doing uh, something the other day, too, like wearing these masks and doing simple activities to see, like, your resting pulse rate. Um, and my resting pulse rate, you know, like the different, like, the more restrictive the masks are, can get about 10 or 15 beats per higher doing uh, per minute, like, just doing regular activity. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so like, obviously, yeah, like, your blood pressure would go up a little bit and stuff, which... You know, yeah. I guess if you kind of look at the concerning things there is that, you know, like then if somebody goes to the doctor, you know, then they might just end up on like, you know, like a high blood pressure medication when they may not n- n- normally be on it or their dose increased or something like that simply because of these masks and, you know, it's just a variable that nobody's willing or taking into consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, armpits. I know you kind of brought it up a little bit. Um, the reason why this is funny as this sounds, you know, just being like in the fitness industry, um, I shave my armpits uh-huh. and I know a lot of guys that do. Um, and it's for one reason we've all wildly come to conclusion without ever talking about it, that, um, when you shave your armpits, your natural body odor is substantially less, you know, like as soon as you start to grow like a little bit of hair, like in your armpits, like your body odor triples down, like almost immediately. Like it is, it is 
apparently noticeable like right away that's it's the primary reason why that all the guys that i know do it is simply for that um and uh deodorants you know like obviously deodorant antiperspirant the combination between the two like all these scented ones you know gels versus the i don't know like chalkier ones the whiter ones like um like fill a sink. So obviously there's, like you said, this is an area where we don't want more bacteria, more bacteria, you know, equates to a bigger problem or more body odor. Um, but like, what do we, what do we know? Or like, what's even a good thing to use underarm or is like, should we not use anything underarm? Um, what's your opinion? Fill us in. Well, from the research that I've done, it sounds like if somebody has gotten to the point where they've got really horrendous body odor, that there's, not too much they could do. I mean, I think if they were willing to go through a phase where they completely cleaned up their diet and they didn't wear any deodorant and maybe they let their armpit hair grow out a little bit to recolonize some of the beneficial microbes, perhaps, I don't know, maybe that might do the trick. But one thing that they're doing is um, armpit microbial transplants. So that in your book, yeah. Yeah. So they're taking uh, microbe communities from people that um, are relatives that have a similar genetic makeup that don't have extensive BO, and they're give, they're applying that to people that do, and then those people have to like not shower for a very long time and things like that in order to let those colonies set. And so, so yeah, that's one thing, but it's recommended to not use antiperspirants and deodorants that have, again, any, anything in them that you wouldn't really want to put in your mouth. So, um, if you wouldn't lick it, don't roll it on. I guess. Yeah. 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 Which is in because like, you know, like that's always been, um, like, it's like your first line of defense. Like you think like how many kids kind of get to like that age, you know, where like they have like a little bit of like body odor, you know, to them, whether it's like offensive or not, but it's like, um, it's, if people immediately go to them, like we don't even think twice about putting on like an antiperspirant or a, a deodorant at all. Like it's just, it's standard protocol in the morning. Like I know for me, I put, um, you know, like, uh, I actually use women's, I know, actually know a lot of guys who use women's deodorant versus men's deodorant. And I find it just because like the men's always have such, so much perfume, like yeah. chemicals in them. Um, yeah. and I like one that's more of like a, a shea butter or a, a lavender as funny as it sounds, <laughs> but, um, but like once a week, like I find that if I just like, like a little stripe, like, like once a week, um, people around me might, tell me I need it more, but I don't, I just, I personally feel like that's about as much as like I need or, or want to put on. But, um, I've always thought, or I think like if we smell a a little bit simply because we can smell this on us or other people, how much of that have we just are coached that it's offensive, but it's just really who we are as people. Like Uh it's actually not wrong with like this subtle odor you right. know, have been told, like, if there's any, you should be self-conscious about it. You know, you should be ashamed about it. You should change it. You should cake more of this stuff on to prevent it. Um, I know I was super self-conscious as a kid because I sweat a ton. Like, I always have, like, sweat lots. So I'd always have 
um, sweat stains in my armpits. Like I was ashamed to put my hand up in school, you know, like, you know, all those things. Um, there's, so I feel like the miseducation, you know, behind, you know, like anything to do with the underarm is the only thing that we know is, is that if there's anything like to do with moisture or smell, cake more stuff on, spray more stuff on, get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that we are supposed to have a scent. Mm -hmm. And stress sweat is smells worse. Like you can, you know, when you work out and you're sweating like crazy, you don't smell. Mm -hmm. Right? It's only when you get stressed out. So things that stress you out. Um, I know that if I have too much caffeine, it's worse. Yeah. So oh. I mean, paying attention to things like that, because it probably is stimulating my sympathetic nervous system too much. And it's probably stressing me out, even though I don't feel stressed, it's stressing my body out. Oh, wow. I never even uh, thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is anyway. So, um, so yeah. There's any correlation or connection between these smells that we would naturally give off, you know, where there's a, a, a stressed out smell, I would imagine that there's probably a happy smell. We just don't really recognize it because we might not be able to pick up on it, you know, but right. our bodies might like, do you think that there would be benefit to these different smells our body's giving off to the people around us? Because, you know, it might bring intrigue, like they smell this and they kind of naturally get this intuition, like, you know, like, yeah. hey Blake, you know, like, is everything okay today? You know, but if we're masking that, like, do you think that there's a, a connection or a bond that we're breaking, you know, between like, cause obviously we know like our sense of smell is very powerful and has a lot of triggers that happen in our body in a very, you know, like positive way, whether it's a line of defense or, you know, like finding food or, you know, like anything along those lines. But do you think that there's a, a correlation between um, like human emotional connection and the smells that we're giving off? There very well could be. I think there was a weakening of that for sure, because we are dumbing it down and on mass and then wearing perfumes and stuff like that on top of it. So we're like totally confusing mm -hmm. everything. <laughs> I think we have a lot of studies to, uh, to embark on. Yeah, right? because, like, we got <laughs> like eight or 10, like really comprehensive studies going on right now. Um, yeah. Then the, the belly button, the navel, like, uh, I know that there's, there's some um, medicines, correct me if I'm wrong, some like topical ones. Uh, that are applied to the navel, I, I could be completely off in left field. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but you were talking like in your book too, about like just like how many different like microbes are found in the belly button. Um, mm. I actually never wash mine. I never think, but I know as a kid, I remember being always told that you should, um, yeah. but you know, kind of fill us in like the one, one, obviously we know that this was originally our lifeline um you know when we were in the womb but like what what do we know about it now like what's the deal with the with the belly button the navel well i mean the navel is a very um important point in the subtle energy system and um in any martial art and the area around it and um there there's an interesting thing connected with the microbiome and that when they were doing a study of what kind of communities are in the navel, they found in one subject that he had um, microbes that are only found in like those volcanic 
vents that nothing can live except for a couple of different kinds of microbes and he had them in his belly button and so they have like no idea how you know he got them there but everyone's belly button is pretty diverse and um it is recommended to just clean it with soap and water especially if you're going to have a surgical procedure done because they don't want those microbes getting inside the body and colonizing um but the navel is a is a place where um you know we we oftentimes talk about gut feelings and things like that and they they happen around the navel and in Ayurveda, um, hot oil, medicinal oils are administered through the navel. So, um, you know, there are different poultices that can be put on with herbal pastes on the navel so that the body can absorb it. So it's, a, it's an important sensitive area. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I guess it is, I, it'd be the, the environment that we're in, but like, it's almost like, you know, if you didn't specifically talk about it, it's almost like it doesn't really exist. Like, mm. it, you know, like we, there's, there's no importance behind it. There's no, like, you know, we have, we know we have this nose and these ears and this mouth hole and, you know, like these, but nobody ever talks about it. like it, it in a very small community, very small environment, but like, there's just, we only just know like this is where our umbilical cord was, it got cut off. Now we have this thing on our stomach and and that's it, you know, like, um, is Western medicine kind of bringing that education up a little bit? Like, are they like thinking about like different ways that they could administer medicines like through the navel? Like, are we tracking down that road with Western medicine at all? I'm actually not sure. I don't know the answer to that question. Hmm. Um, Yeah, but it is an interesting point that there are these places on the body that we don't give attention to by and large. And a lot of that, I think, is cultural. You know, there are certain areas of the body that are, that are considered shameful to, to speak about or give attention to. And so those are the areas that are often most locked up in people where a lot of emotional energy gets stored in the tissue and, um, and it can create problems throughout the body, musculoskeletally and, and emotionally and mentally. So... Um, yeah, that by and large should be something that changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the ears. I'm sorry. I'm kind of like just laundry listing all these things, but like, I just, I don't want to forget to, to not talk about, um, so we got the, I'm never going to use a Q-tipper. There's the Q-tippers. There's the, um, wax little, um, screw things or like, a I don't ear candling. Uh, well, the, yeah, ear candling too, but there's like those, those new ones that almost kind of look like a corkscrew that go into your ear to like pull the wax out that way. Um, like what's your, uh, what's your opinion? Like, My take on it is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, like just don't, if it's not bothering you, why mess with it? Mm-hmm. You know, just cause you know, there's wax in there. If you get an idea in your head that the wax should come out, that doesn't mean it should come out. <laughs> And so, um, like wax has antimicrobial properties to it and wax is like looking at different types of wax, you can diagnose kind of what's happening in the air. And from there, then make a decision as to whether you're going to try and siphon it out or flush it out or, um, or nourish the tissue so that the wax changes. 
nourish the microbes in the ear with oils so that the wax changes. So, um, so yeah. I don't think anybody's ever thought about that, like changing the composition of the wax. Like I have, yeah. I've never heard of that before ever. And I'd be surprised if generally most people have. Um, but that's just, again, not a topic of conversation that's ever really brought up about how to not remove it at all. Not even like what tool are you going to use to remove it, but leave it there, but change yeah. the composition of it. And then, you know, like, you know, allow that to be able to prosper. Like, yeah, it just literally kind of I'm a little bit lost for words, even trying to think, well, like what that means to me, like in my well, mind, I've just never. The wax is protective of the inside of the ear. And so the wax is trying to trap microbes that don't belong there and particles that you don't want to get deeper into the ear. So the wax is there to trap it. Mm -hmm. and, and then it like, as more wax gets created by the microbes and by the glands in the body, then the, the old wax comes out with that stuff in it. And then that's when you can remove it from like the outside of the ear, but you don't want to shove anything way far in or, or try to like make sure you never have any wax in your ears. If you make sure you never have any wax in your ears, you're going to dry your ears out. I mean, that's not good either. And that's going to change the environment for the microbes that live in your ears as well. Mm -hmm. So there's these, there's like ecosystems that belong in certain places in the body. And yeah. the ears are one of them. And you can go online and Google different types of earwax. And there'll be pictures of like, if, you're, if it's too dry, if there's a pathogen in there, what it can look like. And then you can assess what your, what your, your earwax is telling you and, and what to do from there. And then one ear can be different from the other ear. That's the other thing. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. I guess that kind of makes sense, you know, like. Like, why would they be the same or, you know, like it's, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, what's the origin of ear candles? You know, I know not a lot of people even know what an ear candle is, but I've only I used an ear candle. Ear candles are. <laughs> yeah. Like I just like, I, I only did it once, like probably 15 years ago, just cause I was curious. I'm like, yeah. you stick yeah. this thing in your ear and you light it on fire and you know, they just, hearing that crackling in your ears is so interesting. But, um, but yeah, like what, what do you know about ear candles? Well, from what I can gather, what they're trying to do is create a vacuum with the fire that pulls the, the wax out. Mm -hmm. you know? And if you've got like swimmer's ear or something, that might be helpful. But otherwise, again, why do it? It's just this concept that we have to be clean and sterile and hygienic and oh my god there's this stuff coming out of my ears and i need to get rid of it mm -hmm. and it's just a, it's just misinformation it's yeah. just us overthinking and not having the whole truth the whole, all the facts present because we actually want that wax in the ears yeah how can you sell <laughs> q-tips if people want to keep it in there right 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 um, well the q-tips can be useful if the if you need to get some of the stuff out that's you know around the rim or whatever because it's unsightly or it's itching because it needs to come out that's one thing or if you get you know i know sometimes i'll get conditioner and like one of the creases in my ear and i'll use the q-tip to get it out but yeah uh, yeah so they have their purpose um which kind of brings me into i, I forgot to bring it up when we were talking about the nose What's your take on, on neti pots? I know that you you brought it up in the book and how um, there's a lot of uh, yoga teachers that you've come across, some of the um, 
the more experienced ones who are uh, educating uh, these instructors and stuff that uh, discourage because it changes the environment in the lungs? Yeah. Yeah, so um, the saline solution, they believe if you breathe in the mist from the saline solution, that it like crystallizes and it changes the, the basically it changes the microbiome in the lungs, mm -hmm. which can lead to problems. So they don't recommend regular neti pot use. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing. It's like, you know, is what's happening inside my sinuses, is this physiologically appropriate? Or, you know, do I have an allergy? Do I want to flush this pollen out? And so you use the neti pot for a few days here and there, or you're starting to come down with a cold, so you use it um, to flush out the, the pathogen. But do you want to use it every single day? And according to people in India that I respect, I would say no. Mm -hmm. do you, and it's kind of like, like, do you think like those things just catch on because like they're so odd? Like, you, you know, like I had this <laughs> like, spot that I'm going to like pour in my nose, like, you know, because like, you know, I wouldn't say like they're like widely used, but I think they're like, they're used quite a bit and people yeah. always talk about them as like a way, you know, especially like you said, for, for allergies and stuff like that. Right. And, or like your sinuses are clogged. And it's like, Oh, grab your neti pot, use your neti pot, this and that. Um, you know, but I, I think it's like one of those things too, where like I look back on it and it's like, nobody's really ever explained to me the benefit of using a neti pot, except for it's like, Oh, flush it out. And you're like, Oh, flush it out. That makes sense. I don't have to think about this anymore. Like, why would I think about this? But like, when you look about like the other things, like how many people would draw a correlation between changing the environment in your lungs, you know, by flushing on the system, because you think that you're actually trying to improve that potentially because it's easier to be able to breathe. You know, if you can breathe through your nose easier, obviously you're not breathing through your mouth. When you're breathing through your mouth, obviously we know like that's not beneficial to the body because uh, breathing through the mouth dries out the lungs too, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so like you see like all these things, but again, it's more, you know, like do as you're told, but don't ever try to educate yourself. Like I find that is a lot to do like with the body and like the older I get or the more I look into things, like there's just kind of like this global narrative, like around our body. That's like, you know, do as you're told, but never educate. Right. Right. Because they don't really know why they're telling you to do it either. So like I, I misspoke breathing through your mouth. I'm not sure that it dries out your lungs, but what it does do is it um, creates it, it makes it harder for your body to filter what's going to go into your lungs. And so then there isn't, there can be an adverse side effect on the lungs from that. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, no hairs in your mouth, like the nose. Right. Um, and then the, the last one, well, not the last one, one of the ones I talk about is uh, the hair, like the scalp, like the dandruff, you know, like changing like the dandruff uh, from what I remember in the book is um, a change in the, the bacterial levels, like that's where we're getting, is, is is that what causes the dry skin? Did we misunderstand like what dandruff is? Is it not dry skin or dry flaky skin? Kind of fills in on the, the hair, the scalp, the dandruff, that thing. I think it's probably more that the microbes on the skin are telling the skin to do something mm -hmm. that it doesn't need to do, and that's to create more skin. 
Mm -hmm. um, similar to what happens with psoriasis, the skin keeps making more skin, but that leads to plaques. There can be a microbial um, influence on alopecia as well, which is hair loss, not genetic hair loss, but hair loss that is due to stress that resolves on its own out of the blue for no one knows why reason. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there, there's, there are microbial communities everywhere on the body and that's why it's important to use products that are as least harmful to the body as possible. Again, if you don't wanna put it in your mouth, you might not wanna put it on your skin. And if you're using stuff even on your hair, maybe don't put it on your scalp. So in Ayurveda, we use oil on the scalp but oil is food for the beneficial microbes mm -hmm. we know on the skin. So there's not a harm in doing that. It actually helps to calm the nervous system down. And using oil in the navel can also help to calm the nervous system down. Okay. What kind of oil do you, uh, do you use on the scalp? I like to use um, sesame oil. Sesame oil? But if, if, if it's uh, not toasted sesame oil that you cook with, but like a massage grade sesame oil because sesame oil is warming and comforting and it's calming to the nervous system. And I like to use it personally because my vata can get really high and it helps to calm it down. But that said, if you have, if you're somebody whose pit is really high, if you're like hot headed or you tend toward, you know, running warm, then you may want to use a different type of oil. You may want to use like a coconut oil or something like that. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I want to switch directions from like externally and go a little bit more um, internally here. What is your concept for one? I know we've kind of briefly talked about this, but I'm going to kind of snowball these things together here. Um, drinking fluids around eating, like it, before, during, after. Um, like, what's your what's your opinion on that? Like, um, I think that, drink, yeah, I think that if like meal time is not the time to guzzle 32 ounces of water. What about 32 ounces of pop? <laughs> even worse <laughs> because when you um when you drink large quantities of water it dilutes the enzymatic activity and this you're like flushing out all that stuff that's there that you want to have there to break down the food that you're about to ingest so it, it's it's a different water's different than food mm -hmm. and what it does when it goes through your body your your stomach lets it right through and then it flushes through the small intestine. So I wouldn't necessarily want to be flushing out, like I said, all those enzymes and 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 um, and creating a false sense of of being full mm -hmm. with the water, you know. Yeah. Um, so those are because it that's diminishing to the agni or to the digestifier. And again, like one of those things that's like super standard practice in western culture right where it's like you sit down at the table and it's like you're just you're automatically poured something you know or like when you're eating like yeah. it's, it's almost a you know taboo not to be drinking something right and it's okay to have sips of something mm -hmm. so um in like ayurveda we'll say one-third food one-third fluid one-third air 
in your stomach. And oh. that fluid is either a drink or it's a soup or something like that mm -hmm. or a sauce. So okay. a third, a third, a third, or it's the 80, 20 rule in, in Japanese teachings, 80% food and fluids, 20% air, something around those lines. Okay. Um, chewing. How important is it to chew? How long should you chew uh, different foods? Like, do you, do we want to chew everything and just grind it right down to nothing? Or, you know, like, um, like meats, do we want to leave a little bit more whole or, you know, like, like nuts, do we have to make sure because they're so dense, we grind them up more, uh, like fill me in. I, I feel like if we're paying attention, we have a natural reflex that tells us when to swallow. Okay. If we're rushing around, we're going to be like, rah, 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 and just try to get it all in. Right. But if we're like paying attention, like, do you want to mash those almonds into a paste for 20 minutes? No, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're like going against your natural impulse to do that. So I feel like if you're going against your natural impulse with it, then probably you don't need to be doing that. Mm -hmm. Actually, just recently found out I was allergic to almonds after all these years of uh, eating almonds. And then I found out something interesting. I don't know if this, um, you know, it's always tough to know like what's real and what's not real uh, these days with information that um, they genetically modified almonds because almonds are actually toxic to humans. So they had to take a certain um, like molecular molecules out of almonds or something like that. But they've genetically modified them in some kind of way because large quantities of almonds um, are toxic to humans. So like the, even like the almonds that we're eating aren't necessarily like real almonds that you would have naturally found in nature. Um, right. I don't know if that's true or not. I just know that for years I could never figure out why, you know, like when I would eat peanut butter, I would feel fine. But when I'd eat like almond butter or almonds, like I would feel really heavy in my stomach. Um, yeah. I just thought, you know, maybe they're a little bit more dense, you know, I'd have like a mixed nut mixture um, I always just thought, you know, maybe it's because like there's so much fat, um, you know, I thought maybe I could break down the process, even though I, or peanut butter, even though I eat all natural peanut butter, I'm like, maybe they're just processed more. And that's why I can, you know, like, I don't know, it was always, uh, then I stopped eating almonds about three months ago and I feel fantastic. Like I feel great. It was very yeah. odd. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Cause we're supposed to be allergic to peanuts, not almonds, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is, yeah, like I can eat peanut butter and peanuts by the truckload and yeah. like absolutely fantastic. I can have like five or 10 almonds and my stomach feels super heavy. And so that's why I encourage people to pay attention to how their body feels when they have something because you're not the first person to tell me this. People will go off peanut butter and eat almond butter because they think it's supposed to be more healthy or cashew butter or, and they just can't digest it. So whether it's an allergy, a sensitivity, they don't have the microbes for it or the genes for it, whatever it is, let it go. <laughs> yeah, see, and it's funny that you bring up like cashews. I could literally eat handfuls and handfuls and handfuls of cashews and it feels like I've put nothing in my body. That's so interesting because I know people that if they eat a handful of cashews, which one woman that's what she'd have for snack every single day at work, Yep. And when she stopped eating them, she stopped having really, really like uncomfortable bloating and gas. Really? Yeah. She lived with bloating and distension and gas every single day. And she thought cashews were healthy. So she kept eating them and it was the cashews. 
when oh, she stopped wow. eating them, she was fine. Yeah, that was huge. Constipation. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah, and you know, and it's all those things, like you said, where like we just, we refuse to not, well, it's not that we, I guess, refuse to listen to our body. It's just like, we don't do anything when we are listening to our body. Like we know these things are happening, but we do nothing to be able to change it. We're still connected. It's, yeah, it's funny how we just get like locked into these things where, you know, like where I'm, I'm told these, you know, almonds are good. So I'm going to keep on even like, I just explained how I was exactly the same way. Like I never really thought about it. You know, I never really correlated the two together, but once I started picking all the almonds out of my mixed nuts mixture, cause I couldn't figure out why, like sometimes like it'd be worse and sometimes it wasn't. And then I listened to this podcast where they're talking about how almonds have been genetically modified because of like, they used to be toxic to humans. And I was like, Oh, and it wasn't because I like, thought it was toxic and so I'm like oh I wonder if it's the almonds and yeah. literally that day I was like oh 100% and I've talked to people now and I'm like hey I'm like do you feel like heavy in the stomach like when you eat almonds um, and I know the person that I referred to you from here that you've been working with um, she's the same way that can't eat almonds oh, interesting. yeah and so I've been talking to more people about it and it's funny now that the conversation is present how many people are like yeah, I actually feel that same way. I just never really thought it was ever the almonds. I thought it must have been something else or like, you know, like for me in my mind, the way I justified it is because I'm taking this dense fat, like this, this mixed nuts mixture or like this on butter. And it's just like this heavy, dense fat sitting in my stomach against my body, like working through processing it. And that must be where the heaviness is coming from, but never correlated it to like this, you know, minor or moderate uh, allergy to, uh, to almonds right yeah well i know the skin has something in it oh, that people can be sensitive to yeah um yeah. And, and in in the united states they made it i guess into a law that all that the almonds need to be pasteurized yeah they're oh. all like um anti-microbed before yeah. they get to us and so that you can buy unpasteurized almonds but you have to really look for them oh interesting yep. i didn't even know that yeah um, because somebody got sick or or something off of eating from eating almonds that were carrying a, a pathogen and so yeah that's that's the answer pasteurize the whole lot yeah um so then this is uh kind of like where i'm going to go with this next is that do you think that because we have accessibility to all of these different varieties of healthy food, and now I'm talking about food that is legitimately good, healthy, nutritious for the body. Do you think that it's beneficial that we eat all these things? Because we've never had accessibility to these regionally specific healthier items. We had access to our personal regionally specific healthier items um is it advantageous to drift into another region outside of your like like what is not your necessarily not necessarily not unless you're not unless you're missing something in your diet that your body needs mm -hmm. i know in macrobiotics they would say definitely don't eat anything that's outside of your environment naturally oh, okay yeah and do you think that there's a co correlation between the things that are naturally in our environment uh, when we're walking around in a day, if we were in our days, like how we traditionally would used to, like we'd be absorbing 
um, kind of like microdosing ourselves of some of the um, like the bacteria and you know viruses that would be coming like off of these you know like plants and animals and everything that was you know like locally diverse in our areas and so like we would be it'd be a lot easier for us to be able to eat them because again we would be um, kind of getting the pollen you know from different things you know like we just be getting some right. of the bacteria from different things like yeah. if there's any validity behind that absolutely hmm. I do. Yeah, I think that's part of why it's important to eat things that are from our own environments. Yeah. Because we're, we are a product of our environment and we interact with our environment on a regular basis. So it just makes sense that it would, it, for most people, it should be and is easier to, to digest those things. And especially if we grew up eating them. Mm -hmm. Because then, I mean, there's always the case where the person doesn't make a particular enzyme or something like that. And that's, that's different. Um, but for the large majority of people, it's generally advised to eat from your environment. Yeah. See, and like, this is, um, because I have a war on superfoods with people. Like it just, <laughs> like that, that term, that coin term drives me up the wall as soon as people are like, all this then like the social media posts like oh you know like this superfood that superfood and i'm like just tell people like like locally natural non-processed whole foods like that's as that's the superfood like the getting away from the junk like like that's what we were doing but like you always see it it's like you know things like you know pomegranates and blueberries and like almonds and like all these things have just been like these superfoods all like you know pistachio oil and goji berries and avocados and whatever it is yeah um what what do you think is the detriment that we do to our micro gut biome or our health um when we really go off the deep ends of like hooking into these concepts of you know like I'm going to now super overconsume goji berries. And then next year I'm going to super overconsume almonds. And the year after that, I'm going to super overconsume like the next trendy thing. Like, well, it's the same thing with having an erratic daily schedule and an erratic dining schedule is that it's confusing to the body. Mm -hmm. The body is very simplistic and it, it doesn't need complicated and it doesn't want it. So the, the more it can expect to receive what it's expecting to receive, the, the more stable a person's going to feel. So it's like a vata imbalance to keep changing things like that. It's a vata imbalance to not eat at the same time every day. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have to eat, you know, gruel <laughs> every meal like in these movies about people like in the dark ages and stuff but it's 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 definitely beneficial to have a varied diet from your environment that you eat at regular times during the day and you don't keep changing that up because mm -hmm. that's part of what sets the body out of balance mm -hmm. And so by, by like saying what you're saying, like eating this, I'm going to eat this for X amount of time and then switch to that. Like, how can you even plan that? Like if you're listening to what your body actually wants, it, I mean, it's, it's a, it, then you, then you can't even plan that you're going to do that. And 
And it's the same thing as far as I'm concerned. There, there are diets that you go on that are necessary for certain medical conditions, necessary for athletes working in a certain way. You know, that, that aside, going from diet to diet to diet, eliminating food groups for no reason other than, you know, I feel like I need to clean the wax out of my ears kind of uh, thinking is, is not beneficial for the body as well. And that's kind of my pet peeve. Like you've got the superfood thing. I've got like the dieting thing because it drives me nuts that people go on diet after diet after diet after diet. Well, what, what if you just simplify? You know, what if you just ate what your grandma made when you were growing up for a little while and then just kind of tweaked it from there to see what works best for you mm. now? You know, like why go on this crazy thing? Cause some scientist doctor said that it benefits X, Y, and Z. Well, what about ABC? Yeah. You know, and that's not being taken into consideration. See, and you know, like for me, like what I've really come down to in, and I honestly, like the more I start to, um, refine my thinking when it comes around nutrition, the more I don't want to talk to people about it. Um, not, not as in like, not talk about, sorry, that's a poor choice of words. Um, not try to help somebody with fingers because I actually, what the only advice that I ever say to people is I'm like, you know, you don't need to ask, like it comes to listening to your body. Cause like when people ask me like what I eat, I'm like, like, I really eat what makes me feel good. Like, I can't tell you, I'm like, Sometimes I grab a handful of hard bite potato chips and I eat them mm-hmm. because my mind is like, go eat. But I'm like, but I don't eat them. Like, like I very sporadically would eat something like that, you know, but I gravitate towards more freeing myself of thinking that it has to be this and just getting more into like um, eating to like how I feel because I realize there's, there's times in my life, like when I'm stressed out, like I don't really like to eat heavy stuff. Like my, my body just wants like, like easy to digest things like, like without even saying it, like I would gravitate more towards like, you know, like a smoothie that I've made or a soup that I like want to make. Or, you know, like when I feel like really strong and really going on, like, I feel like I just want denser foods. Like I can't explain that, nor could I, write some plan or coach somebody down the environment. It's like, I just, I allow my body to be able to tell me like what I want. And, you know, especially like some days, like, you know, if I'm just doing cardio, like I just, like, I need, I'll eat everything I can even touch, you know, like, and there's days where I haven't done very much physical activity where I don't really feel like eating at all. And then there's days when I'm like lifting super heavy weights for like, for whatever reason, and like, I see a cow on the side of the road and I'm going to get my fork and my knife. Like, it's <laughs> like, there's just, I, I really just try to let my body tell me like in that moment in like that real time, like, okay, we have these resources at home, you know, like we don't have ice cream. We don't have, you know, cereal. We don't have this junk, but like these resources, like tell me what we need to put in based on like what, you know, our goals are like, our goals are strong, healthy, energetic, like loving life. Now tell me what I need to put into you so that I can facilitate that. Because the more I try to micromanage my diet, the more I feel like I throw off everything in my body. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, because it's a disconnect from what your your body actually wants when you do that. Yeah, that's what your mind is thinking it wants, and that's the problem. And that's what people need to be coached on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. When someone comes to me and they want a food list, I'm like, well, there's one in the book, but everything you just said. Yeah. Um, so let's dive into this and then we can, um, we can wrap it up after that. Cause I know I'm kind of getting skinny on taking your time from here. So, um, I've noticed a lot because I've started to pay attention to it is that when there's emotional disarray in my life, how much that affects my digestion. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts and opinions on that? There is, there is an apps. There is such a connection between the brain and the gut that it's sometimes difficult to distinguish what's causing what. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this in the book, the gut brain axis. Yeah. And it's about how the gut is constantly sending messages to the brain, telling it whether the body is safe or not. Mm-hmm. And the brain is responding to that accordingly and sending out those chemical messages to the cells and and changing the direction the nervous system's in based on that input. And then the other thing is that whatever we're thinking and feeling is sending messages to the gut, Mm -hmm. telling the gut what to do to change the physiology because we're either safe or we're not. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant dialogue every second. And so I, if we're- I, I find, sorry to cut you off. Um, I find that when I'm happy, my, or put it this way, I mean, not say, when I feel emotionally balanced, because I now understand that emotionally balanced doesn't mean you're always abundantly happy learned that lately um that um i feel like my metabolism is so high yeah like it like like the more emotionally balanced i am i'm just like chronically hungry like i just i could just like my metabolism is ridiculously high um does that make sense is that like a unique thing to me does is there any kind of um would it just I feel me in like, have you ever heard anything like that before? Like, I just don't want to add too much to the conversation based on like what I've um, kind of found. Well, I mean, you do a lot of exercise. So, and you're not just doing your own exercise. You're helping people do theirs and probably demonstrating and stuff like that. So you are, you know, you need a lot of, of nutrition and um, I mean that, that makes sense to me based just on that. And, um, you know, and I think that, like, if you're feeling emotionally balanced, do you tend to, is that when you'll go for the potato chips or whatever? No, it's actually, um, the more emotionally balanced I feel, um, the more I gravitate towards eating meat. Okay. It's, um, I feel like the times when if I eat, which is weird, it's like I will, I literally nothing bad except for like potato chips for some reason. Um, I actually feel like those are the times when um, I'm calorie deficient for the day. 
is when I will do it. Like I've just, I haven't ate enough through the day and my mind is just like, there's like that simple, easy thing, like right there. And it's just like that. Um, right, right, right. Like, like, yeah, it's it really for like, because the, the problem for me when I eat, when I'm making food, I laugh because everybody who knows me will laugh when they listen to this part of it is I have like my, my pre-dinner dinner or like my pre-lunch lunch where I'll eat while I'm making food because I'm uh, I just, I get so hungry and so I, you're like I, a hobbit then. What's that? <laughs> you're like a hobbit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's like, I eat like an absurd amount of food. Like it, it scares me the day. Like if I ever become like lethargic because of like of some reason, like my legs are broken or, or something on those lines because uh, like I eat, it is shocking how much food I eat. Like yeah. it, it, it doesn't even make any sense. So, um, but like, it, like, I just like, and it, like, I, I literally can sit down and eat like the portion for like two or three people. And I, I only just stop because I feel bad for eating more. Like it, or, like I, because the thing is for me, like I get to a point where like, I feel like I know too much where I'm like, well, I know I don't really maybe necessarily need these resources, but my body's telling me that I am, but if I'm stuffing this in me, although I don't feel stuffed, how much inflammation am I creating in my body by just packing all this food in there now? But I sit there and I think I'm like, but I could eat more. Like I feel hungry still. We got to wait that like 20 minutes. Yeah. That. That's where the chocolate comes in. <laughs> but yeah no it's um I find it very very interesting like um because I'm going through a, a personal development well another one I um right now and it's a 30-day one that we've kind of stretched out the um a friend of mine him and I are going through this course together and I find that um since we've started taking it I and I walking down this road of being a little bit more like emotionally balanced and like kind of these new concepts and redefining like just certain terms, even like forgiveness and healthy boundaries. But I feel like the more emotionally balanced I get, I've got hungrier. Like I, I since we started this like three weeks ago, I eat way more. I, I'm way more hungry now. Um, and I, and I know as I've kind of like looked back at like different times, like in my life when I know that it's been like that same way, although I might not have been going through a, like a course or a program, but like the better I feel like, and the more emotionally balanced I feel, I eat more. This just happens to be like, I know I'm cognizant of it and uh, I find it to be really strange. Yeah. Well, you're probably using your brain more in that course too. Yeah. Which I did research those chess players and how many calories they burn playing chess. They couldn't figure out why they were so skinny. And they say that like extreme cognitive duress, you know, you're just thinking less and doing through all these calculations, um, burns more calories than physical activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Fascinating. Again, one of those things that we just don't know because they have, they have no, they have no understanding why the body would burn so many calories because it doesn't even take that many calories to fuel our brain to be able to have and compute these thoughts but for some reason there's something happening in the body that it is but again the complexity of the body right right yeah absolutely 
Yeah. Something, another research study for us to go through. I know, I know. It's like the eighth one today, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Um, well, like I said, as we got an hour and a half in there, um, I don't want to keep you, I don't know if you're pressed for time or not and stuff, but we can, we can wrap things up there. Um, we got through like typical about 30% of all the questions yes, yes, I had, yes. but um, thank you so much again. I always just thank appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's fun. Have a wonderful day. All right, you too.